0: This morning to the book of Revelation chapter 15 and we'll pick up in our study of this book for you folks who are guests with us today. Again we want to welcome you and thank you for of all the places you could have been today. Thanks for choosing this place and we're, we're grateful that you have. But you can see at the top of your study sheet that this is now the sixth week that we've been talking about the great and marvelous wrath of God. Now When we're talking about God's wrath being great and marvelous, the reason that we say that is not because we're demented, not because we're sadistic and, ah, ooh, yeah, we like to see God just breathing out His wrath. The the reason we say that, the reason we call it the great and marvelous wrath of God is because that's what the Word of God calls it. And what we've kind of resigned ourselves to around here is that we really, our opinion doesn't, really matter a whole bunch what the best way to to live your life is just find out what is god's opinion and make his opinion yours and you'll be set for life and what god says in revelation chapter 15 is that his wrath is great and marvelous now most of the time when we talk about some aspect of god that is great and marvelous normally we talk about his his what we talk about his love and oh my goodness it is great, and it is marvelous, isn't it? I'm telling you, if you're here today, and you may be somewhat new to God and the Bible and the whole Christian thing, oh, let, let me tell you, the God of the Bible, the one true God, the creator of all things, is is a God of love. And over the last several weeks, We've gone all over the Bible to see that fact, just to kind of balance out what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 15. And what we've seen is that for the last 6,000 years of human history, God has constantly and continuously manifested His love for people. In fact, what we've seen in the book of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16 is the way that God describes it is not that He just loves but what it says in 1 John four sixteen, I want you to say it with me, God, what, is love. And it's, just, it's a monumental thing if you'll just listen to what that says. He is love. It's the, it's the essence of his being. It's not something he does. It's something he is. He loves, not because he wakes up every day and says, you know, let's see, I, you know, I think I'm going to love some folks today. No it's his nature to love what wet is to water love is to God you know I mean you just can't separate wet from water you can't separate love from God it's his it's his nature and because he is love let me take you back to just to me what is a blockbuster verse back in the book of Exodus Exodus chapter 34 because god is love there's some other things that he is there's some some incredible things that have ramifications for every single person that's in this room this morning that flow out of god's love for us and we see him in exodus chapter 34 and look at verse 5 it says and the lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there that is moses and proclaimed the name of the lord now the name of the lord is the sum total of who He is. It's the combined attributes of who He is. And God's getting ready to tell you His name. He's getting ready to tell you who He is. He's getting ready to tell you what He is. Check this out. And the Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Check it out, man. Because God is love. flowing out of that love, here comes the fact that He is merciful, He's gracious, He's long-suffering, and He's good. Could somebody say amen to that? But God isn't only love. In fact, if He's God, he, He can't just be love. And I'll explain that in just, just a second. But, but the same little book of the Bible that teaches us that God is love says that God is something else, and that is that God is, say it, He's light. And, and so that we might really understand the, the, the full scope of the concept, what, what it's, it, it doesn't just say God is light. You know what God does? He qualifies it. He, he says God is light, and in Him there is no No darkness, and so that we might fully understand the total scope of the concept, he didn't just stop there. He said, "In him is no darkness." Say it, y'all. At all, and I'm just telling you, you just got to love the way that God lays this book out, don't you? He He is love, and He's light. Now, what, what does it mean when the Bible says that He is light? It's another way way of saying that God is. Huh? That God is holy. And so what we find in the little book of First John is that what John does is he takes the incomprehensible, infinite God, which with our finite human minds, listen, if we took the whole rest of eternity to try to explain God to you, we could never fully comprehend just how vast and, and who he is. But what, what John does in this little book of First John is he takes this infinite, incomprehensible God and he just breaks him down into really the lowest common denominator. And he says that God is love and God is light. If you want an explanation about who God is, you, you got it right there but now the question of all questions is this how can god love sinners and yet remain holy okay we've already talked about that he's light and he's love but you see if if he, he just takes sin and he sweeps it under the rug and acts like it didn't happen then god ceases to be holy so the question of all questions is, what is God going to do? How can God do anything that is not going to cause him to conflict with his very nature, since his nature is that he is holy and his nature is that he is love? We, I, I wish we had the time to turn to it. I was planning to. I just can tell you, we ain't going to make it if we, if we turn to all of these today. But in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, you want to know how God answers the question? You know how he can continue to love sinners and yet remain holy? Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 puts it this way, that he is both, listen, he is both just and the justifier. He is just and the justifier. Check it out. We're all sinners. We can't do anything at all about that. We can't do anything whatsoever to change it. And because God is holy, he doesn't want to change it. Man is separated from a holy God. And yet, remember now, his nature is love. He can't stop (laughs) loving. And so what God did in his love, he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and came to this planet so that he could be the justifier of sinful man and to remove his sin so that he could continue to love him and yet at the same time remain just and remain holy. I'm telling you. You know what, this is one of those things in the Bible that just helps me to really fully understand how vast this God is because I can just tell you if man wrote the Bible and he's going to sit down and he goes to the Create a God Center and he's going to create a God and says, you know, we're going to, we're going to write a book and we're going to try to put together this really awesome God. You know what? You would not take those type of concepts. Your mind, human mind cannot conceive up that kind of stuff and create this, this great dilemma between God and himself. And yet God, somehow, in his vast knowledge and the the vastness of his very being, has got the plan, man, I can remain just, and the justifier, I can continue to love sinful man. So, when we talk about God's wrath being great and marvelous, we, we say that because, now listen, if God did not have wrath against Do you understand the implications of that? If he did not have wrath, if he did not hate sin, he would cease to be holy. And because his nature is holiness, for him to not exercise wrath against sin sin would mean that he had changed in his nature. And you do need to make sure you understand, if God ever changes in his nature, brace for impact. Because once he begins to change in his nature, you can no longer be sure of anything. Understand that? I mean, let God just say, you know, Adam does this little gig in the garden, he makes the choice, and God says, y- you know what, let's just forget that whole gig right there. You know what? You can never, once God changes, you can never be sure of anything again. You know what? You're holding a book in your hand that I can promise you will never, ever, 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 ever change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The book of Malachi, God says authoritatively, I am God, and I don't change. You can bank on that. The fact that the God of the Bible is a God that is never, ever, ever going to change. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 15. In Revelation chapter 15, are you already there? Oh, we went to Exodus there you go in in Revelation chapter 15 John is is being introduced to God's incredible wrath against sin now the actual wrath is going to be manifested when we get into chapter 16 but to get him ready for what he's about to see what what God does is he gives John just a, a little preface he gives him a little preparation to to let him just kind of settle in to see what he's about to see when we get to chapter 16. Now, to be quite honest with you, I'm really thrilled that God put Revelation chapter 15 in his book because, you know what? I think John could handle this whole wrath thing a whole lot better than we can. We need to understand, according to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, we're living right now and what is considered, from God's standpoint, the seventh and final period of church history, represented in a letter written to the Laodiceans. We live in the Laodicean age. The word Laodicea, which really is a, a, a capitalization of the way that God sees this period of time in Christianity, the word Laodicea means the rights of the people. Folks, we have embraced a very self-centered, self-seeking Christianity. We want to know what's in this thing for us. And you see, when we're looking for what's in it for us, we don't like this whole concept of God being a God of judgment and God being a God of wrath. And so in Laodicea, you know what? You don't hear much about what we're talking about here. You don't hear much about God being a God of judgment and God of wrath because lay out of just don't want to hear it but folks our commitment here is to just put it out the way that this book puts it out and we know that it's not palatable to begin talking about the god of the bible is the god of holiness and wrath we know that goes against the grain but you know what it doesn't change the fact of the bible doesn't change the fact of the god of the bible our, our call is just put it out there the way that God does. And so in chapter 15, God just prepares John for what he's about to see. And it's been six weeks, really, of preparation for us. Now, you know, we've been talking about the wrath of God. We ain't seen nothing yet. We're just talking about the concept. When we get into chapter 16, it's going to be poured out. And so God has used chapter 15 really as preparation time for us. And, and what we've seen, you can look on your study sheet there, we've seen the unveiling of this great marvelous sign in heaven. That great marvelous sign is none other than his wrath. And as John sees this, what he does is he invites us to look at the scene. And we began to see how this whole thing comes together to where there are seven angels that John sees And they're holding the seven last plagues which are defined for you in verse 1 as the fullness of the wrath of God. Then we we talked about the... uh, After he allows us to look at the scene, letter B on your outline, he allows us to listen to the song of a group of people that were on planet Earth that were raptured uh, right toward the end of the, the tribulation period. We've talked about that before. Many of these people were people that were killed by the Antichrist, and so uh, before that uh, tribulation rapture, they were actually there. And he allows us to look at the scene. We, we get to see these seven angels. We get to see them holding these seven last plagues. We, we see the this, this sea of, of people that are there, these tribulation saints. And they begin to sing, and John allows us to listen to the song. And these are the things that we've talked about in the last several weeks. And now this morning we come to Roman numeral 2 on your outline. The opening of the temple, of the tabernacle, of the testimony in heaven. Check that out. Sounds like a, a church down in the south, doesn't it? The first independent, fundamental, premillennial Baptist Church of Heaven's Holy Redeemer of Siloam Springs, you know, they they kind of go off, you know, and check that out, man. John says in verse 5, and after that, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now, that that statement there in in verse 5 could actually be a, a complete study in itself, and in days gone by, it probably would have been. But we've been in chapter five or 15 long enough, I'm going to try to, to not make this a, a study in itself, and yet by the same token, I mean, you can look at a phrase like that, and you know already there's some things that God is wanting you to be able to see from, from that, that, that statement. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take just a little bit of time to talk about this incredible phrase there in verse 5, So that we might understand the ramifications of everything else that's going to be taking place in this this chapter. And first of all, you'll notice that he he talks about the temple of the tabernacle. Okay? Now, we can go back into the Old Testament and we can find that there was a tabernacle. Now, a lot of you folks that are new to the Bible, this is something that is totally foreign to you. And maybe for you to really understand the purpose of this tabernacle, that we're going to look at in just a, a couple of minutes, if you'll if you'll just get this in your mind from the very beginning and, and I, I for the life of me I can't understand this but from the very beginning God's design in this whole thing of creating human life is that he wanted a fellowship with us and I, I'm telling you it's, it's incomprehensible why would a holy God all-powerful god why in the world would he want to fellowship with with us i I don't understand it all i know is that's what the bible teaches and when he created his creation in genesis he gave them his image he gave them his likeness and he created them to have fellowship with him and in the cool of the day it says in john or genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 god would come down into that garden and he would fellowship with his creation You know what it is? It's that whole God is love thing that we were just talking about. But you know the story, man chose sin, and because God is holy, it separated him from his creator. And by the time the book of Genesis is over, it ends with Joseph dead in a coffin in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is always and consistently a picture of sin a picture of the world. And when you come to the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, what you find is that God's people are in bondage in Egypt. They are slaves to a godless taskmaster. And really what you have in the book of Exodus is a very graphic picture of the human race. Because folks, and Frank talked about this as we were worshiping this morning, we were all, and some of us even to this present moment, but we were all in bondage to our sin and to the world and we were slaves to a godless taskmaster by the name of Satan in fact in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26 what it says is that we were caught in the snare of the devil that we were held captive at his will we were in bondage to a godless taskmaster but you see God God couldn't stop being who he is. He is love, and so he still loved us even though we were separated from him, even though we were in bondage to our sin, and what he wanted to do is he wanted to deliver us out of the bondage of our sin. He wanted to deliver us out of the control of Satan, and in the fullness of time, what he was going to do, as we talked about earlier, he was going to visit this planet in the person of Jesus Christ, Christ, to do just that to deliver us out of that bondage. But you see, for us to really understand that God had done that, and to really prepare man for that, God had to do some things to prepare the world for it. And one of the first things that God did to prepare for the, for, prepare the world for what he was ultimately going to do through Jesus Christ is he says, Moses, I want you to build something for me. And you've got to understand something. God is getting ready to show you through this thing that Moses is about to build. He's getting ready to show what he's going to do on this planet in person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to turn back with me to the first mention of this tabernacle in the Bible in the book of Exodus, chapter 25. The word tabernacle means dwell. What God was wanting is he was wanting Moses to build him a dwelling place on the earth. Now, understand, God dwells in the third heaven, okay? But God wanted a place where he could dwell on the earth. And you know why he wanted to have that place? You know what that was all about? It's spelled out for us here in the book of Exodus, chapter 25. And look with me down in verse 22. Check it out. He says, you build this place, Mo, and there I will meet with thee. Check this out. And I will commune with thee. You know what God's showing you that even though he's white even though he's holy he's saying I'm still a God of love though and I still just like in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 I still want to meet with you I still want to commune with you I'm telling you that's an incredible God right there and go over to Exodus chapter 29 and verse 42 this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your did I tell you what verse? verse 42 this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. In verse 43, and there I will meet with the children of Israel. And look over to verse six of chapter thirty, and thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony. Check it out. Where I will meet with thee. And drop down to verse 36. And thou shalt beat some of it very small and put it put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet with thee. And if you want to understand the purpose of the tabernacle, it is the place where we, what? It's where we meet with God. What God is showing you is His gracious incomprehensible desire to meet with humans. I'm telling you, man, it is just an incredible, incredible thing that God wants to continue to fellowship with us. But then there's a second thing, if you're really going to understand what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 15, there, there's a second thing that you need to understand about this this tabernacle that God told Moses To build, and it's this: you need to understand that it was only really a. a, And I hate to to put it in terms like this, but this tabernacle that Moses was commanded to build was really just a, a cheap, earthly replica of the grand reality of the tabernacle that was in heaven. You see, there was a prototype in heaven. And I want you to see this. Turn over to the book of Hebrews, and as you're turning there, just just, just listen, because this is so very, very important. You see, this is, this is where we get ourselves all messed up as humans. You see, we view this thing the exact opposite. Okay, now, now, now think with me. We think that the real tabernacle is the one that Moses built. That's the way our mind works. But we think that the... The, the real temple is the one that Solomon built in, in Jerusalem. We think that was real, and, and we think that the one in heaven just kind of symbolizes that real one on the earth. And what you've got to see is that it is the exact opposite. The real one is in heaven, and you couldn't see it. You see, that's why it's not real to us. The real one that you could touch and see isn't really the real one. You understand that? All right. But you see, that's so important because what that really is, it's descriptive of how we, we, we live our lives. You see, we think that what we see is the real thing. We think that reality are all the things that we can see and hear and feel and smell and, and and taste and then there's these you know surreal things that go on in the unseen world and paul comes along in second corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 and he says whoa 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 you guys got this thing all wrong and what he shows us in second corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 is the way that god views things and the way that God views things is not the way that we view things. You see, what he says in Second Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 18, what Paul tells us is that there is another half of reality that you can't see with your physical eyes. Now, you see, we think what is real is all the stuff that we can look around and see. And what Paul is trying to get us to see through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's another half of reality, y'all, that you can't see with your physical eyes. What he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 is that the things that we see are just the temporal things. The things that we don't see in that other half of reality are the real things. Those are the, the what, y'all? Not the temporal things, but the, they're the eternal things. And he's saying there's a whole other half. Listen, y'all, let's just get it all real simple. You know why Paul was so effective in living the Christian life? It's because of what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. He says, while we look not on things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And Paul said, that's where I'm living, and that's where I'm looking. Those are the things that I'm focused on in my life. And what he did is he saw the reality above and beyond all of the things that he could see with his physical eyes. And you know what Paul did? He made his choices and his decisions based on what he couldn't see and this is where we get ourselves all messed up y'all because most Christians on this planet make the choices that they make in this life make the decisions that are gonna affect the rest of their life based on things that they can look and see with their physical eyes you see the reality of the Christian life is to look into the eternal realm that you cannot look around and see if you make your choices based on those temporal things, you're going to make some bad choices in your life. Paul says, you know what? If we just understand this, there's another half of reality that you can see only through the eyes of faith. And if you'll get plugged into those things and get focused on those things, you'd live in victory. And you see, there is a true tabernacle in heaven. You should be but to the book of Hebrews, but now, Hebrews chapter 8, and let's look at verse 2. He says, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifice, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that is God, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And what he's talking about is, yeah, there was this, this system where the priest would go into that tabernacle in the Old Testament, but he says, listen, you gotta understand that tabernacle really wasn't the real thing. The true tabernacle is one that you couldn't see with physical eyes. And what Moses built here on the earth that we think is so real was just a cheap earthly replica of the true tabernacle that's in heaven and we won't take the time to look through the other references you can you can do that a little later on but there's a third thing that you need to understand about this this tabernacle if you're really going to understand what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 15 and that is the pictures Of the tabernacle in the New Testament. Now, check this out. In in Exodus 25, and of course we didn't go into detail and I showed you the purpose, but if we were to take the time to go through Exodus 25 and on into uh, 26, 27, 28, what's going on there is God is telling Moses how to build. This tabernacle, and you know what? If you didn't have the New Testament, you you look at all that stuff there in the in the book of Exodus, and God telling him, you know, build it this way, and put these ropes, and the, all this. You, know, you look at all of that and say, what? In the, what in the world is this thing all about? They're just crazy. But you know, hey, whatever. You know, whatever God wants to do, that, that that's cool. But oh my, what, what you gotta see is that everything in this whole tabernacle was just a foreshadowing of what God would do when he would visit this planet in the person of Jesus Christ and, listen to this now, and tabernacle with us. You know, in in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. It comes down to verse 14 and it says, and the Word became flesh and what? dwelt among us. You know what the word is? And tabernacled among us. Ding, 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 ding. Oh yikes. I I think God's trying to show us something. And what you begin to see is that there are some absolutely incredible things that you see in Jesus that relate to the tabernacle. Okay? That tabernacle in the old testament, but remember now, That tabernacle in the Old Testament isn't the real one. The true tabernacle is in heaven, and what we're going to see is the true tabernacle is really Jesus. And you begin to go to that tabernacle in the Old Testament, and all the things that God told Moses that he wanted him to put into this thing, and you just begin to see how God's mind works. And how Jesus Christ is really the fulfillment of that Old Testament tab- tabernacle. Now, you, you, you've got a picture of it on, on your study sheet there. We're not going to do a whole lot of referring to it, but I just wanted some of you folks that are new to the Bible to just get a, a, a visual picture of what this, this dwelling place actually looked like. But as you enter into the, the tabernacle from the east side, and we won't go into all of the reasons for that, but every time that God makes a move in the Bible, it is always from east to west. Every time, and again, there's all kind of proofs on that. We don't have the time to do it. But the first thing, when you walk into that tabernacle, the first thing that your eye would see is the brazen altar. And where, what, what the brazen altar was, was where the sacrifice was made. The sacrifice was made at the entrance into the tabernacle. Jesus comes along in the Gospel of John and he says, Now I'm going to tabernacle with you. And in John chapter 10 and verse 9, you know what he says? I am the door. Listen to it. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. He comes along in John chapter 14 and verse 6 and he says, I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but, what, by me. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, and again, Frank talked about this in our worship time, he is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. And so here, as we move into the tabernacle, as we come through the door to find the way to the presence of God, there is the altar of sacrifice. It's Jesus, as He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And the second thing that we see is the the brazen labor and what it was was a place of of washing. Jesus said also in John fourteen six, He said, "I am the truth." Now, now listen in John seventeen seventeen, He prays to the Father and He says, "Father, sanctify them." Through thy truth, thy word is truth. And in First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, he's talking about all of this, this nasty, dirty sinfulness and fornication and adultery and drunkenness and all this stuff. And he says, and such were some of you, but, listen, but you're washed, but you're sanctified. Listen, but you're justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we're washed, we're sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is not only the brazen altar, He is the brazen labor. We, we go further into the tabernacle and we come into the holy place and as we make our way in there, we see the table of showbread. There's, there's table, a, a, a table there and on the table... There is this loaf of bread. Jesus comes in John chapter 6 and verse 35, and he says, I am the the bread of life. Listen. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And also in that holy place is the candlestick. Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the... You can see it coming, can't you? I am the what? I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. And and then in that holy place above everything else there, we see the altar of incense. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures... Of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says that he ever liveth to make intercession for those who come unto God by him. And what we find is he is our intercession. And then as we move from the holy place, we come into the holy of holies. And there it is, the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 11, when God told Moses to make that ark, listen to what he said, Exodus 25 and verse 11, and thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. Because you understand? You understand who that ark is? That ark is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the only one ever worthy. Of wearing a crown of gold and also in that holy of holies there it is on the top of the ark the mercy seat the mercy seat is the place of perfect peace it's the place of victory it's the place of rest and all listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. I, I wish we had time to turn to all of these, but would you just listen? Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Christ is called in this verse our, our mercy seat. Listen to it. It says, Whom God hath set forth to, to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. The word propitiation, and this is, this is how, how God defines Himself in this book. That word, propitiation, is translated elsewhere in the New Testament. Mercy seat. Listen to it again. Whom God has set forth to be a mercy seat through faith in His blood. And all who come and find that mercy through the blood of Christ, listen to it, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, He is our peace. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, He is our victory. And Hebrews chapter 4 says, He is our rest. That tabernacle, hey, that's just a cheap, nasty replica that you see drawn on your study sheet. That, That thing that's going on back there in Exodus, that's just a cheap replica. If you want to know who that tabernacle is, it's the one who came from heaven to tabernacle among us that says, I'm the door, I am your washing, I am everything that you need to continue a relationship, I'm the word of God, I'm the light of God, I'm your intercessor, I am the one that brings you through the veil and into the presence of God at the ark to the mercy seat to find victory, to find peace, and to find rest. But not only is This tabernacle that we're talking about here and that you see on your picture, not only is it a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also a picture of the life of the believer. And let's just walk through this tabernacle one more time and let's, let's just see what God has lined out for us here. We come, once again, to the brazen altar, and what this is, it's the place of our salvation. It's a picture of our coming to Christ cross where he was he laid his life down as a sacrifice for our sin And you see this is how we come into the tabernacle we come to the brazen altar we come to the cross and through the cross we come in to christ that's how we're placed in christ so we come through the blood and through the sacrifice of the lord jesus christ on the cross and next we find ourselves at the brazen labor. It's the the place of sanctification. It's a picture of us being separated from the world. And what it is is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26 where it says that Christ sanctifies and cleanses us with the washing of the water by the Word. And so we come to that altar of sacrifice, the cross. We get daily into the Word of God to find that daily cleansing that washes our feet and and our hands. And then we come to the table of of showbread in the holy place. What it is, it's the place of fellowship. It's where where we feed, as Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 says, not on physical bread, but by every word that proceedeth Out of the mouth of God, we come to the table of showbread because it's the place of daily coming to the Word of God and feeding on the bread of life. There's the candlestick that is also, and what it is is the place of testimony. It's where we're personally illuminated by the oil of the Holy Spirit to as Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 says, so that we might shine as lights in the world. And then we come to the altar of incense and what it is, again, is the place of intercession. It's where we come and we make supplication, as Philippians 4, 6 says, for ourselves and for others. And then we enter through the veil into the Holy of Holies. And there it is again, the Ark of the Covenant. And what the Ark of the Covenant is in the believer's life is the place of surrender. It's where we come into the full presence of God for who He is. It's where we find that the Lord Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, is our all in all. Having I mean, come into His presence, we come there sheltered under the, the mercy seat. And in His presence, we partake of His peace, we partake of His victory, we partake of His rest. Now, All of that is so that we didn't have to spend the next several weeks trying to get you to understand the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. Okay? There's a true tabernacle in heaven. Listen now. There's a true tabernacle in heaven. And it's the one that John sees in Revelation chapter 15. But if you don't understand the purpose of that tabernacle and you don't understand that it is the prototype, if you don't understand the pictures and how God uses that thing, you'll never really understand what we're going to see in the remainder of chapter 15. Let's, let's see if we can't cruise through this. <coughs> Alright. Again now, he sees this, this true tabernacle that Paul was talking about in Hebrews chapter 8. And verse 2, the heavenly tabernacle. And when he says in verse 5, the temple of the tabernacle, what he's talking about specifically is that innermost sanctum in the tabernacle that we were just talking about, the Holy of Holies. And even more specifically, he's referring inside the Holy of Holies to the Ark of the Covenant that contained the tables of stone that Moses received when he was in the mount. Actually, it was the second one because he broke the first one. But inside that Ark was... The tables of stone, which is called in the Old Testament the law or the testimony. Okay? And he says here, I, I saw into the, the Holy of Holies and into the Ark of the Covenant where the testimony was. Now, now check this out. And he says, it was opened. Now, now what you've got to keep in mind is that ever since Jesus Christ died on the cross, and the veil, of course, when he died on the cross, the, the Bible says the veil was rent from top to bottom. You've got to understand that ever since that took place, every person that has lived since that time has had the opportunity and has had opened to them the holy of holies through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Those three things are defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 as the gospel. Okay, now check this out. Because Christ's blood was shed, God has opened His arms of love. He's opened His arms of grace. He's opened His arms of mercy and forgiveness. But what we learn here through what God showed John in chapter 15 and verse 5 is that there is coming a time And it's going to be during the second half of the tribulation period. And at this time, once again, that tabernacle is going to open. But this time, it's not going to be so that God can pour out His love and His grace. This time, it's going to open so God can pour out His wrath and His fury upon the world like it's never known. And listen, every person who has rejected the grace and mercy of God offered through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be judged by the testimony that's sitting in that tabernacle, buddy. That book is going to come out, and through the God that is revealed in that book, here is going to be pouring out, again, not His grace and mercy, that's what He's offering now. But He says there's coming a time. It's going to open, and out is going to pour the wrath and the fury of God. And, and, and you know, I think if you're really going to understand this, this thing of this temple in heaven opening and, and God unleashing His judgment, you've you got to understand what is going to be taking place on this planet during this this period of time in that temple that is on the earth. We've already talked about this back in Revelation chapter 11. During the first part of the tribulation period, the Jews are going to rebuild the temple. The Antichrist is going to allow that thing to happen. And at the midpoint in the tribulation period, you remember what's going to happen? Can you already see this thing coming? The temple on the earth in the Holy of Holies is going to be opened and the antichrist is going to go open that day and he's going to walk in there where the ark of the covenant should be the throne of god you know what he's going to do he's going to parade his sorry self right in there and he's going to take the seat that is reserved for the lord jesus christ and the temple on the earth is going to be opened and satan himself is going to go sit on that throne now do you understand what's going on in Revelation chapter five, 15, verse 5, God says, all right, that's it. Popeye would say, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. And he's going to deal, buddy. He says, okay, that's, that's what you want you're going to you're going to allow that thing to to take place you're going to allow him to come into the holy of holies and you see what's going to happen on this earth when he comes into the holy of holies and he sits on that throne throne that's reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ what, what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is repeated in Daniel chapter 9, Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, he is going to come into that temple, he's going to sit his sorry self down on that throne, and he's going to proclaim that he is God, and he's going to demand that all of the world worship him. And we've gone into all kinds of detail on that in recent weeks. And listen, every person who acknowledges that, oh yes, you are God, what's going to happen to them is they're going to receive his mark in their hand or in their forehead and without that mark you're not going to be able to buy or sell anything and yet if you refuse to take it according to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15 and Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 what's going to happen to you if you will not bow to the Antichrist when he sits his sorry self on that throne what's going to happen to you if you won't do it you won't get the mark if you don't have the mark they'll lop your head off That's how civil things are getting ready to become on this earth, y'all. And you see, according to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, and this is what is so sad. What it tells us in Revelation 13 and verse 8 is that almost the entire world is going to bow their knee to this false Christ. They'll take His mark. They'll take His number. And they're going to think He is the absolute berries and while that's going on on the earth in response to the Antichrist opening the Holy of Holies on this planet the Lord God Almighty the one true God is going to open the Holy of Holies in heaven to take out his vengeance and his wrath on the Antichrist and every single person who follows Him and takes His mark and worships, worships Him. And you see, if you don't understand that, you really don't understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 15. When the Holy of Holies is opened. And first, John sees the heavenly messengers of the wrath of God. These are those seven angels that we, we saw earlier. And, oh, my goodness, man, I, I wish... I wish that on Sunday morning that God would just take time and just put it on hold for long enough for us to do what we, what we need to do. And, you know what, we, we've got... Uh, it, it, it's, it's going to take us too long to get through the rest of it this morning. But would you do this before you pack up? I, I, mean, I hope you plan to be here next week because we have taken all of this time to just get to the place to where we can see why it is that God is so cheesed. And I think the thing that that grips me more than anything in the world is as I'm preparing these messages talking about the wrath of God because we know what time it is because we've we've, we've seen that clearly through this study I have to live as I'm preparing with the reality that there's people in this room that have listened to everything else, everything that all of us have listened to, that if they continue to go the path that they're going, they are going to be the objects of the wrath of God that we're talking about. And, you know, I know you're not preparing the message, but... But you folks that know the Lord, would you just allow the reality of that to settle in for just a second? The people, listen, the people that you witness to on a daily basis, those that continue to reject your message, these are people that are going to have the wrath and vengeance of Almighty God poured out upon them. And, and, and maybe, just maybe, if we could really comprehend the reality of that, maybe it might change our approach in evangelism. M- maybe it would cause us to wake up every single day with a passion and say, Oh God, would you please today with my neighbors and with the people that I'm going to work with today with my family members, oh God, would you open doors of utterance. I don't want to go barging through life, beating people's doors down, but oh God, would you work in the lives of the people in my circle of influence, and would you open a door so that I can walk through that to give them the message that can change their life. And would you please, this morning, even though we weren't able to, to see the rest of the passage, would you just, you understand enough about what we've, we've talked about today to understand what's going to take place on this planet. And now, without all of you that know the Lord kicking into some weird gear, if nothing else, just pray for people that are in this room today. Now, could I talk to to some of you folks that we've been so blessed have in our midst today now listen we, we, we believe that this is a time when we come together to worship God as a church and to, to feed on his word and to see what this book is really all about because it's how God has revealed himself to us and so we haven't as we've been going through this we haven't made all of the application to you personally and what God wants to do in your life but I do want you to grab this God came to this planet and tabernacled among us because He is the true tabernacle. And He laid His life down as a sacrifice for your sin. Just like we were talking about at the beginning. Because He's holy, the price of sin had to be paid, and because He's love, He didn't want you to have to pay it. And so He came took an earthly body so he could tabernacle here for the sole purpose of laying his life down for you. So your sin could be removed so that you could have a relationship with God. The relationship with God that you were created to have. And today, listen, God is a God of holiness He is a God of wrath but today is a day of salvation today is a day of grace and God wants to manifest His grace to you listen not after you've settled your life down and He wants to be a God of grace and a God of salvation to you today because you see the Bible says boast not thyself of tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring forth I said it a little earlier you may have missed it you will either know God is a God of grace and love and mercy in this life through what he offered through his son or you will be a recipient of His judgment of His wrath His vengeance and His fury. And today the holy God of the universe that loves you so much that He did everything that was necessary for you to be able to come back to Him. He stands with open arms and commands that we repent you see the Bible says we've all chosen our own way we're all going our own way we come to a place in our life where maybe in a service like this BAM! God reveals himself to us and when we see him for who he is the natural result is we see ourselves for who we are And we come to a place to where we no longer choose our way. We choose God's way through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come first to the brazen altar where He laid Himself down as a sacrifice. And that's how you enter into His peace, His victory, and His rest. And that's what God wants to do in your life Today, oh yeah, this is going to happen in the future. But today, God says, "Come to me, that you might have life." Let's bow our heads, Lord. I, I pray today for people that are in our midst that don't know you. Oh Lord, I I, I pray that you would open their eyes today to the reality of who You are. and May this be the day when they humble themselves before You. Simply admitting, I know that there's nothing that I can do to get to You. So I know You came to us so that we might have a relationship with You. And oh Lord, may this be the day of salvation for people in this room. And Lord, we know that it's totally your job. You said that you would draw people to yourself. You said that the Spirit must convict people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And Lord, what we're asking you to do today is to take the Word of God that's been proclaimed in this place. And Father, draw people. We pray that the Spirit would be used to to help them to see the reality of their sin and your incredible holiness and righteousness and the fact that there will in fact be a day of judgment. And Lord, convict people in this room of that today. So that they might find the joy of forgiveness, grace, mercy, in the love that you manifested through your Son. And oh God, would you please use this passage to sober our minds, those of us that know you to the reality of the people that you have placed in our circle of influence and oh God, help us not to be calloused to their incredible need for a Savior realizing the judgment that will come to those that reject you Oh Lord, please do Your work in our midst today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.